Uh, yes, yes, you can't pick on them. So. Okay, we are, uh, today we are uh, in uh, beginning our study in Romans chapter 5. We finished chapter 4 last week, and uh, we are looking at uh, the first five verses, Lord willing, of chapter 5 of Romans today. And for those of you who... Uh, who uh, aren't normally here. The study sheet that I passed out just a few minutes ago is for next week's lesson, uh, assuming that we get through all five verses today, which is going to be a challenge. Uh, But uh, we'll do our best. Uh, Last week, we looked at the last four verses of chapter 4. Beginning there with verse 22, Therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. If you have, uh, uh, you remember anything from last week we talked about, what do you remember? Uh, what are some of the things that stick in your mind from last week's lesson? I know it's cold when I start rolling down my sleeves. Yeah, I know, but I'd have to reach it. <laughs> oh, I'm fine. You, you all make yourselves comfortable and don't worry about me. Okay. So, last week, do you remember anything? Or do we have to go back and do that lesson again? <laughs> yes, Sarah. Okay, Uh, and so when we talk about the locus of our faith, what are we talking about? Okay, who we trust in. So the locus of Abraham's faith was whom or what? God, okay. And and, uh, what is this God like? Okay, he's given him a promise, a pretty incredible promise, actually, because at the time he gave him the promise, he didn't have any children. He and his wife had been married for many, 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 many years. They were both near dead and they didn't have any children. And God gave him this promise that they were going to have descendants like the sands of the sea and innumerable and that from them all the nations of the earth would be a pretty remarkable promise. And Abraham believed in that God because that God can do what? Anything, okay. But specifically, what does he mention there in chapter 4 about this God that he can do? He is the God who creates out of nothing. He is the God, in theological terms, we, we call it ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. He creates, brings into being those things which do not exist, okay? And what else does he do? He gives, he gives life to the dead. So, even though these, pro- these promises are pretty incredible that he gives to Abraham, it's no sweat for Abraham. He believes that this God is able to do this because this is the God who gives life to the dead and brings into existence those things which do not exist. Okay? What else did we learn? Well, that was the locus of his faith. What was the content of Abraham's faith? Look, at somebody left me 50 cents up here. My wages have gone up. <laughs> Infinitely. <laughs> what was the content of Abraham's faith? Okay. It was the promise itself. So the locus of his faith was God. The content of his faith was the promise. He believed that God was going to fulfill or keep this promise that he had given uh, to Abraham. Now, when we compare our faith to Abraham, which is what we were talking about last week, that's what those verses are about. It's about 
how our faith compares to that of Abraham and how we are uh, how the things that were written for Abraham were written were not only written for Abraham's sake but for our sake as well because we fit into this same category with Abraham by our faith and our faith like Abraham's faith has the same locus which is we believe in this same God who gives life to the dead and brings into being those things which do not exist okay so we believe in the same God But when it comes to the content of the faith, Abraham's faith was in the promise of God specifically that he would have descendants and that those descendants would be as innumerable as the uh, the stars of heaven and, uh, and that from those descendants all the nations of the earth or particularly from one of those descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So that was the content of Abraham's faith. What is the content of our faith? That Jesus is and did what he said he would do. Okay, okay, exactly. The, the content of our faith is focused on the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, with Abraham, that was not true because he really didn't know how this was all going to work out. He didn't have all those specifics that we now have uh, thousands of years later. So, Abraham simply believed the promise that God gave and that he was able to keep that promise. And, he, and it says in hope against hope, he believed without wavering in that promise, and we do the same thing. Only we, only the content of our faith is much more specific than Abraham's. We believe now in that one whom he sent to bless all the nations of the earth, and we believe in that means by which he does that blessing, carries out that blessing, which is the death and the resurrection of Christ. Something else we talked about last week, we talked about the death and the resurrection. What did we talk about about those two things? from those verses that we looked at last week. Specifically, the last verse we talked about last week. Jim's dying to say something here, but he he wasn't here, so he's going to restrain himself. (laughs) Okay. 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 Uh, and that's a that's a good way to translate it. There, he was he was delivered up or delivered over because of our transgressions. The reason Christ died is because you and I were sinners. And Christ went to the cross. He was delivered up. And the idea there is delivered up by the Father. His Father delivered Him over to His enemies to be crucified, to be brutally murdered in order that our transgressions could be forgiven. In order that we might be justified. Okay? But then it says, it goes on further, and it says He was raised because of our justification. And without going into all the details of what we talked about last week, the idea there is that Christ's resurrection is His vindication. Christ's resurrection is the evidence that His death accomplished what it was intended to accomplish, which was our justification. Okay, So... So he died in order that we might be justified. He died uh, because of our transgressions or for our transgressions. And his resurrection is evidence that in his death, the wrath of God was satisfied. And that our justification was secured. And the resurrection is the evidence that we have for that. If Christ had not raised from the dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we would still be in our sins. Okay? So that's why the resurrection, that's one of the reasons why the resurrection is important. Because the resurrection proves that the death of Christ finished the work. Remember, as he hung on the cross there at the very end, he says, it is, he says, he cries out, it is finished, and he says he gave up his spirit. And so, what the resurrection shows us is that God was satisfied with that work. If God had not been satisfied with that offering, Christ would still be in the grave. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Okay, And so that's the significance of the resurrection. He was raised because, in fact, we were justified in the work of Christ. Okay. Well, let's go on then now. In chapter 5, we pick it up in verse 1. He says, Therefore, 
having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint or make us ashamed, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay? Now, uh, we've, as a class, we've been... We've been praying over the last several months about this friend that I've been telling you about, about uh, Gabriel's friend that we've uh, prayed for a number of times over the last uh, last number of months. And, and as I shared with you a couple of months ago, uh, of course, you don't know who she is or anything, and you don't know many of the details because I haven't been able to share those things with you. <clears throat> but but she did uh, come to Christ a couple of months ago. And, and one of the things she told Gabrielle right after her conversion on September 12th was she said, uh, she said, this changes everything. And the fun thing in her blog is she posted about this on her blog last week and she finally went public internationally with her, uh, with her uh, on her blog about her conversion. Uh, one of the, she, she, she uh, equates really her conversion to the Damascus experience, Paul's Damascus experience. Uh, on the road to Damascus, and she talks about that a little bit at the beginning of her blog. And then she talks about how she had a similar experience and she encountered Christ uh, a couple months ago. And she says, and then in her blog, she says, this changes everything. And then in italics, she says, everything. (laughs) And I thought, boy, she's a new convert. <laughs> Wait till she's known Christ for a few years, you know. If she thinks this changes everything, and she does. She's got it nailed down. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 5, folks. This changes everything. And so we really have a major shift now from chapter 4, from actually chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 25, in which Paul has been setting forth both the need that we have of salvation and then the means by which that salvation comes and the and the and the uh, the thing by which that salvation is implemented, which is our faith and how crucial this issue of faith is. And it's by faith and, and, it, and it's not by works. And he's been talking over and over again and, and in great detail and with with elaborate illustrations from the life of Abraham and from the life of David. He's been explaining to us how desperately we needed Christ, how desperately we needed salvation, how what peril we were in under the wrath of God, but how now this salvation, this justification, he calls it, that is to be declared righteous in God's eyes, this justification has been secured for us through Christ by faith. And it's by faith. It's not by works. It's not by anything we do. It's not by the law. It's not by our religious ceremonies. It's not by anything that we can see but it is only by faith that we are made just before God. And, and, and so he's been arguing this all the way through chapter four, through, uh, from chapter 1 through chapter 4. And you'll recall that a great deal of it he's been doing in kind of what we call a polemical style or a debating style. And he's kind of set up this kind of imaginary uh, uh, combatant out here, this imaginary... Uh, debater out here who keeps debating him and asking him all these hard questions about what he's teaching. And so, all the way through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, particularly chapters 1, 2, and 3, you get a lot of this. You say this, but I say this. You say this, but I say this. And, and so, there's a lot of this, this uh, uh, back and forth uh, and and uh, second person singular, you this, you that, you this, you that, and then and then he responds with what he says. Now we get a major change in chapter five, beginning in verse one, and he switches to the instead of the uh, instead of the second person singular, he switches to the first person plural. And notice how over and over and over again in this in these chapters he uses the term. We, we this, we that, we this, we that. And so really he switched now from this 
kind of polemical style, this debating style that he's been going through for the last three chapters, three and a half chapters. He switches to, to what we might think of as a confessional style. When I say confession, I don't mean confession of sins, but confession in the sense of confessing what we believe, confessing what we know. Okay? And so he switches to this, this, this kind of confessional style. And, and so what he really begins to talk about in chapter 5 is... Since all of this has been true that we've talked about and then we're saved by and now we're saved by faith and we're justified by faith, now what? Okay. What happens now? What if if this was if this was my situation before I trusted Christ, what is my situation now that I have trusted Christ? And so that's what he begins to set forth in these chapters. And he does it he does it with this, with this theme or this, this kind of underwriting, under, uh, underlying tone of joy and exaltation. So even here in these first uh, 11 verses of chapter 5, which are really kind of one paragraph, we're just looking at the first part of it today. But the first 11 verses, this idea of exaltation comes up three times. He talks about uh, exulting uh, in, uh, in the glory of God and exulting in tribulation, etc., etc., etc. So there's this idea of, of, of joy that just kind of pervades these, these next several chapters uh, as he sets forth what our condition is now that we are in Christ. Now, I want you to notice in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, having therefore been justified by faith. Um, and and there's, there's, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting what, what he's doing here. When I, when I was uh, much younger than I am now, and we won't go into that in detail, but when I was much younger than I am now, as I, the, the context that I grew up, and I grew up in a Christian home, uh, and in a Christian context. But in the context in which I grew up in, actually, uh, until about my teenage years when my parents moved uh, to join another, uh, another kind of ministry. But in my, in my earlier years, I was in a context in which kind of the typical church that you would be in, and you would go Sunday morning and Sunday evening and of course, Wednesday night, you always had prayer meeting, you know. But Sunday morning, Sunday night, it was always kind of the same thing being preached. And uh, in fact, back then, we didn't call them pastors. We called them preachers. And the reason we called them preachers is because really pretty much all they ever did was just preach the gospel. Okay. And when I mean that, what I, say, when I mean when I say that is typically what you expected to hear every Sunday and every Sunday, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night when you went to church, you expected to hear the preacher preach to people who were lost and to invite them to be saved. Okay? And there was, in that context at least, very little emphasis on teaching believers. Okay? So there was a strong emphasis on winning the lost. And that worked out pretty good in the context I grew up in because I grew up in an Arminian context in which you, know, you might be lost several times in your life. So it's kind of handy to always have the preacher around telling you how to get saved or that you needed to get saved because you, I mean, you might have been saved a couple months ago, but you might have fallen out of grace, okay? And so you needed to be saved again. So it was kind of a handy thing to have. But the unfortunate thing about that is you never really grew. Lousy at creating disciples, that's exactly right. And one of the really exciting things that I discovered as I grew as I got older and, and my parents uh, left the denomination they were in, partly for that reason, and, and went and, and uh, took, uh, took on other activities and ministries. Uh, and, uh, and as I got exposed to other things, I discovered something really neat about the church is the church. The church, as it meets together, is not really primarily for winning the lost. The church, when it meets together, is for building up and making disciples. That's our job as a church, okay? It's as we go out into the world, it's as we go out into the community, that we go out to win the lost. It doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to share the gospel within the context of the church and encourage people who maybe come, in, come inside our doors. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not our focus. That's not our emphasis. And, and so what I discovered is that what the church, one of the things the church is really about as the church meets together is the church is about 
helping people figure out how to go on from their conversion, how to grow in the faith, how to become disciples of Christ. Okay, well, that's what Paul is doing here. He, he is not content to simply get us to the point where we're justified by faith. But he wants us to go on from here. So this is implicit in this first line of the verse where he says, therefore, having been justified, implied in that statement is, okay, now that this is done, then what? Okay. Now that this has happened, how should we be thinking? How should... How should we look at ourselves? How should we look at God? Okay, so implicit in this first statement is this idea of, you know, we need to go on. We need to go on from this point. It's that idea that we pick up in Hebrews chapter five, where where the writer of Hebrews rebukes the people to some degree, uh, gently, but nevertheless, quite directly. He rebukes them because he says, by now you ought to be teachers. But you still have someone, you have the need for someone to teach you the elementary principles. And, and so, what we're, what we're encountering now in Romans chapter 5 is, and in the chapters that follow, particularly 5, 6, 7, and 8, is the idea of moving on. What are, the, what are some of these weightier, as Hebrews calls, the meteor truths that we are to be chewing on and feeding on and eating? Okay, So, that's what we're doing now, now that we're into chapter 5. So, while it's true that implicit in that first sentence is the idea of going on, there's something else that's implicit in that sentence, and that's in the word, therefore. You notice he starts the sentence, he starts the chapter here with the word, therefore, having been justified by faith. So, while it's implicit in this sentence that there's a need for us now to move on from these elementary things, also implicit in this first sentence is the idea that you can't go on without the thing upon which you therefore can go on. Okay? In other words, boy, I made that one really dark and cloudy, didn't I? In other words, we have kind of a paradox in the Christian life. And the paradox is this, that once converted, once transformed by Christ, once justified by faith, God expects us not just to stay there, but to go on and to grow in our knowledge and to grow in our understanding and to learn some of the more profound things about what it means to be a Christian. But the paradox is you cannot do that without continually going back to the gospel. So Paul says, Paul is saying, okay, this has happened. We're going to move on. We're going to discover some things now that are true about us that weren't true about us before. We are going to go on. But we cannot go on without maintaining the foundation. So we constantly, as Christians, as we grow, what happens is we is our understanding grows and and our appreciation of what uh, of what we have in Christ grows and our you know we we become better theologians actually you know if I can use that term. But as that happens, what do we find ourselves doing? If that is really happening, one of the things we're doing is we keep going back to the gospel and discovering more about what the gospel really means. Okay. So that's some of what we're going to be doing over the next several chapters. We're going to be moving forward and opening up whole new vistas of what it means to be a believer in Christ. But we cannot do that without continually returning to the foundations. For, for example, uh, Within any profession, you know, whatever profession you're in, within any profession, when you first get started in your profession, you spend the first period of time in your profession learning what? Learning basically the mechanical aspects of your... Okay. You begin to learn just kind of the rudimentary, elementary things of your profession. Okay. So I'm a paint contractor. And, and there are some things, and I, you know, I learned to paint from my father and uh, from a few other good painters that I've been around over the years. And, uh, and, and, and I learned about some, just some rudimentary, elementary things. Like, when you dip your paint brush in the bucket and you bring it out, 
and you know you have to get that extra paint off the bucket. How do you do that? I like it on the wheel. That's your mistake. You don't know one of the rudimentary, elementary principles of painting. That's why I don't paint. <laughs> That's why he doesn't paint. Right, okay. Because when you do that, time after time, it forces the paint up into the butt of the brush, and pretty soon you've got paint everywhere. Okay? There's a way to keep all the paint down in the tip of the bristles. Okay? I'm not going to tell you how. That's my secret. Okay? <laughs> See, Tom knows because he's a painter too. See? But, um, but at any rate, Rick, we have secrets. That's great. That's fine with me. I'll hire you to do my work and you hire me to do... Okay. So, so we learn these elementary principles, but eventually you would hope that when you, after you've, done your, you've been in your profession, you've gone on from that, right? You're, you're not back there still doing all that basic stuff, right? Okay. You've, you've advanced. So, so I know a lot of stuff now that... You know, that I've added on over the years, which hopefully makes me a better painter. Okay. And you've done that in your profession, whatever you are, right? Okay? I, I could, but not during class time. <laughs> um, so, uh, now that we're more advanced, does that mean that we forget all these elementary things? We don't do it because what happens? Now, take for example a football team. You know, the football team gets out there and they play a game. You know, and they're supposed to be a pretty good team, and they get out and then they just blow it. Usually, when they blow it, why is it? They've abandoned the fundamentals. They've They forgot how to tackle. They forgot how to block. They forgot how to do the fundamentals. They failed to do the fundamentals. One of the things they kept talking about last night that the problem that uh, the uh, the team that was shall not be named kept having is they couldn't tackle in the open field. Okay? That's an elementary principle of football. Okay? There you go. There you go. Okay. Now, in my profession, sometimes people ask me, Rick, how, like Tom was just saying a few minutes ago, how do you paint? You know? And I think, okay, now I'm supposed to tell these people what these elementary principles, but to me, they're all second nature. You know? So I don't really think about them that much. Okay? They're second nature, so I just do them. Okay. And so when it comes time to show somebody how to paint, then I have to go, okay, now let's see, what were those basic things, you know? And I could tell you stories all day, okay. But I'm not going to do that. The difference, though, with a Christian life is the elementary things never become second nature. You've got to keep thinking about it. You've got to keep thinking about the gospel. You've got to keep thinking about the cross. That's why Jesus said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. We've got to keep these things in mind. And Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, then he starts into this list of things that are now true about us that were not true about us before. And the first one he lists is what? We have, he says, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says that, if, if you haven't been taken four or five months to get to this point in Romans like we have been, <laughs> when he says that, your mind goes back to what? Earlier in Romans, hemp. We have peace with God. Goes back. What's, that, what's your mind go back to? How about Romans chapter one, verse eighteen? What does he start out with? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Until that moment in which you believed Christ. Until that moment in which you were righteousified, justified. Until that moment when you were justified having believed Christ. Until that moment you were at war with God. He'll talk about that in a few verses. Down in verse 10, he's going to talk about when we were God's enemies. And when you talk to the average unbeliever on the street, 
person who's not a Christian but may believe in God, the last thing they think is that they're an enemy of God. Most of them. Some people, they know they're at war with God. But most people have no idea they're at war with God. But it's very clear they are at war with God. They are resisting God and God is resisting them. He opposes the proud. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, he says. God resists the unbeliever. God is at war with the unbeliever. And he and we are at war as unbelievers. We were at war with him. If you want a good description of how perilous our situation was, I don't agree with everything he says in this sermon, but it's a pretty good sermon anyway. Listen to or read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. I know, you studied it in school, right? And you learned to make fun of it in school. Well, now as a believer, go back and read it. Now, I don't agree with some of the things he says in there, but, it is, but one of the things, one of the pictures he portrays that I think is so graphic and is really so true is that unbelievers, as unbelievers, we were dangling over the fires of God's wrath by a mere thread. We were on the precipice of utter destruction. God was angry with us, and though we would never admit it, we were angry with God. We were at war with Him. But something happened. The gospel came to me. Or the gospel came to you. And you believed the gospel. And at that moment that you believe the gospel, you went from an adversary, an enemy, a hostile enemy of God to being one who was at peace with God. That's an incredible transition. And it happened in the moment. (laughs) My daughter's friend says, Everything changes. Everything changed, folks. That moment you trusted Christ, everything changed. And you were, one moment you were an enemy of God, and the next moment you were at peace with God. People talk about having a good day. Yeah. That is a good day. It's a good day when God is no longer your enemy. Now, you know, the unfortunate thing, I was thinking about this yesterday, sometimes, oftentimes as believers, we kind of live like God's still got something against us, don't we? Oftentimes we live our lives kind of like, you know, well, I'm just not doing real well and God's real not, not, not real happy with me and, you know, and He's probably, you know, He'd probably like to take me out to the woodshed. Maybe He would, but, but folks were at peace with God. We're at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, if we could just get a handle on what that means. I, as I was thinking about these various truths in this part of Romans 5 in the last, the last few days, I kept thinking, these are such glorious truths and I can't even get a handle on them. These are such amazing things and I, I, I can't even get my arms around them. I wish I could... I wish I could get my arms around. I wish I could stand up here and tell you what it means to be at peace with God. I can't. It is just so incomprehensible. Because I was so much, and you were too, at war with God. And I was in such great peril, and you were too. And by the grace of God through Christ, We are now at peace. And I think that's really the main emphasis of the idea here as Paul uses the word peace. This idea of the of the cessation of hostilities. Okay, but there's really more implied in the word. Because this word in the Greek here that's used is the word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew word shalom. Okay, you're familiar with the word shalom. It's that greeting that Jews still use today when they come into somebody's home or they meet somebody on the street or as they're leaving and departing from someone. Their greeting or their, or, or their words of departure is this blessing of shalom. 
Well, when they say that to one another, usually, probably, I think anyway, they're not saying, may our hostility cease. (laughs) But they mean something far more than that. They mean, may you experience the blessings of God. And may your life be, may you experience the well-being that comes from God. So being at peace with God is not just that not just that we're no longer on hostile terms, but there's all this prosperity. And I use that not in a material sense, but in a spiritual sense, all this prosperity and all this blessing and all this goodness and all this well-being that is ours because we are justified by faith through Christ. Shalom. Well, not only through Christ do we have this peace with God. But he says in verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we stand. So, now that I've been justified by faith through Christ, I have the peace of God. But... But there's something else that's happened to me. I have been introduced by Christ through faith. I have been formally introduced into the condition of grace. Now, this is one that takes some unpacking. And I... As I thought about this verse, as I meditated on this verse this week, as I was studying, I was thinking, man, this is fantastic. Then yesterday afternoon, as I was thinking, how do I explain this? I'm going, I have no clue. This is so, this is so esoteric. This is so, this is so far out. I, I don't even know how to talk about it. And yet, And yet, I can just sit here and relish in the privilege of standing in grace. Where did I stand before? I stood in the law. And I stood under the law. And Paul's going to talk a lot in the next little bit, in the next next couple chapters. He's going to talk about what it means to be under the law. Okay. And he's going to stress that we are no longer under the law. But right now, he's not dealing with that. He's just talking about the fact that we are standing in grace. Well, how do we get there? How do we get to this place of standing? And we'll talk about what it means to stand in grace in a minute. But first, how do we get there? Through Christ. Through Christ, okay. Through our faith, okay. So we believe Christ. And Christ then, it says, did what? If you have a New American. I don't remember how all the translations translate. But how did your New American say it? If you got a New American. You were what? Introduced. That's what it says there, right? In your English? No. Okay. We have obtained our introduction. Okay. Now, the idea there, the word there, has the sense of uh, some translations translate we have our access, okay, which is a, a legitimate translation. But but the idea more is one of privileged access. Privileged access. How would you like to get a full-fledged, no-door-locked, Access everywhere for you Sooner fans to to uh, the stadium, to the football stadium. You go everywhere, up in the press box, you know, into the you know the the you know the the one percent boxes, you know. You can go everywhere. How would you like that? Would that be fun to do? Most OU fans would like a privilege of a full-fledged tour of the OU stadium. Well, I've had it. I've been in all the little nooks and crannies. Well, not all. You know, I'm sure I haven't been in the janitor's closet. But I've been in all the important places at OU Stadium. I got to go into all the fancy boxes where the millionaires sit and enjoy their football games. Got to go up in the press. Got to go up on top of the press box where they put the cameras, you know, up on top. Got to go up there on top. You know, I got to go everywhere. 
And you're wondering, how did how did you get to do that? Well, it's just because, you know, I just walked in and did it, right? I didn't have access. I just walked. He's shaking his head. He knows better. You can't do that at OU, at OU, State, OU Stadium, right? What do they call it now? Memorial Stadium, whatever. Gaylord, yeah, that's right. Gaylord Stadium. Okay. You can't, you know. Well, I got to do it right after they built all the new addition and everything. And, you know, it's all, you know, the new multi-million dollar addition that they built here a few years ago. I got to do it. You know how I got to do it? I had somebody with a key who knew me. It was my son. He says, Dad, you want to see it? You want to go, you know? And so he took us through. We went everywhere. You know, anywhere we wanted to go, we went. Because he was the one of the guys responsible for the keys, you know, and he was responsible for locking up the stadium every night. One of the guys that was responsible for locking up the stadium. Every night. So I got introduced to the OU Stadium. I could never have done that on my own, but I had an insider who could get me in. And he took the family through, okay? And about anybody else he knew who wanted to go through too, so I wasn't all that special. <laughs> but this is the idea. It's access to some place you couldn't get unless somebody introduced you. You know, you might think of, I might say, you know, access to the present, although many of you might not want, you know, knowing some of you wouldn't, all the data are all interested, but, you know, access to the present or access to, uh, to a king, you know. You don't just walk in. You need someone to introduce you, okay? And so this is the idea here. And there's a, there's a sense of, in the word here, there's a sense of formality to it, okay? So it's not just something you just do. It's just, this is kind of a, almost a ceremonial, honorary thing, a privileged access to what? Grace. And so now, since I have been justified by faith through Christ, I have obtained my introduction into this grace in which I stand. Right? So now we understand that that grace is not something we just experience once in our life and get saved, right? But grace is, can I use this term, is a state of being. Grace is a state of being. Once I'm justified, I'm there. I'm in this state of being of grace. Right? That means that everything I breathe and everything I eat and everything I experience is within this context of God's grace. So if I am in this Context. If I'm standing in this context of grace, and the idea here is kind of an ongoing continuity, if I am standing in this context of grace, what can I do that will make it so I'm no longer standing in grace? I'd say nothing. Why do I say nothing? Because if there's anything I can do that makes it so that I no longer have grace, it wasn't grace to start with. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, that's a, that's a fine line we'll get into later in Romans. Okay. But for now, let's figure out where we are. Okay. We are existing. Now, what I may be feeling at a given time or experiencing, as you say, may be different. And we'll get into that, okay, later in Romans. But for now, it's just, it's, this is the reality, folks. This is the reality. Is if you've been justified by Christ, you're standing in grace. And anything that can take you out of that condition of grace makes grace no longer grace. Right? By definition, right? Grace cannot be conditional. Grace cannot be conditional. So if my standing in grace is conditional, it's not grace. So I am now standing in this grace. I have been introduced to it 
formally brought into it by Christ and here I stand and every single thing that I now encounter in my life comes through the environment of God's grace. Everything. There is nothing that I experience in my life that does not come through that environment of grace. Now, a lot of times, I know it doesn't look like it. I know it doesn't look like it sometimes. We can deal with that. But what we need to come to grips with is that we're standing in grace, folks. We are standing in grace. And since we are standing in grace, Paul says there in verse 2 at the end, and we exult in hope is the glory of God. So, I have peace with God. I'm standing in God's grace. Nothing can change that. I'm secure in His love. And so the result in my heart is I just exult in the glory of God. What does that mean? Sounds good. Yeah? It's a good verse to quote. No, we exult in the glory of God. What does it mean? Okay, okay. And when we read this phrase, the glory of God, in Romans chapter 5, what does it make us think back to? In Romans. Hint, hint. The wrath of God. Okay, but something else. Uh, something else. That too, maybe, but the phrase, the glory of God. Have we encountered it before? Okay, okay. We exchange the glory of God, Romans chapter 1 and 2, okay. And then in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our sin caused us to fall short of the glory of God. Now, this idea of the of this this idea of the glory of God uh, is is kind of a big thing to Paul. He kind of harps on this, okay. And one of the things he's telling us is that when we were sinners, we were falling short of God's glory. And when we encountered verse twenty three of Romans three, we thought about that a little bit. And what does that mean? And there's kind of two dimensions to it. And one dimension is the one that that Debbie just mentioned is the idea of being in his likeness. Remember in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 2 when Adam and Eve were created, they were created to be in the likeness of God. Now, when they sinned, that effaced the likeness of God. They didn't totally remove it. We still, as James makes very clear, we're all still made in the likeness of God. So we still bear some of that image. But it has been, in large measure, effaced. We cannot see that image anymore. We fall short of reflecting the true glory of God in our lives because of sin. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But the other aspect of the glory of God is the glory of God that we get to participate in. Okay. In that uh, Paul talks about the fact that we're going to be raised in glory and our bodies are going to be raised in glory. And he talks about participating or sharing in the glory of Christ. So there's an, there's an eschatological, that means future time or end time. Okay? There's an eschatological aspect to the idea of the glory of God that in the end, we get to, we get to be part of all this spectacular stuff. You know? Go back and read the early chapters of Ezekiel. You know, the wheels spinning and all that glory and all that, all that, you know, all that fantastic stuff. Or Isaiah where he talks about the glory of God. Read all that stuff, you know. And, there's, you know and, and then think that God really has it planned so that at some point in the future, you and I get to get in on all that. You know? Not that we get to take glory that rightfully belongs to Him, but He's going to let us be in that environment and share in that environment, and we are going to be glorified. Which means, to some degree, He's going to imbue upon us a glory that we do not presently have. We've fallen short of that. There was no way we could get to that. There's no way we could get from point A to point B, according to Romans 3.23. But by God's grace and faith. He has justified us. He has forgiven our sins. He's made us righteous and He has redeemed us and He has promised us 
Not only that we would have peace with Him, not only that we would stand in grace, but that we would have, we would be able to be a part of all this fantastic glory of God. And Paul says, we exult in this. This is, you know, is that is that our experience as believers? Now, how many times as believers do we walk around? Okay, I'm preaching to the choir here. Okay, I mean, I'm preaching to myself here. You know, how often as believers do we walk around with our heads down? I do it all the time. I do it all the time. I, I get in these funks, you know. And, oh, life is such a boom. You do that? Yeah. And I go, this is so wrong. Because I know, and we're going to learn, obviously not today because we're running out of time, but we're going to learn that this is an absolute certainty. The glory of God for the justified person. That we are going to be partakers of that glory and we are going to be radiating that glory out to others. And everything else I'm going through, this I can glory in. So what we have learned now in the first two verses, and obviously, as I suspected might happen, we didn't get through five, so we'll pick it up in verse three next week. But what we've learned so far is that now that we're justified, we have peace with a God with whom we were at war. That we now stand secure in this relationship to God of grace. And that we have this future of the glory of God. And so now we've learned that now that we're justified by faith, the Christian life is just this idyllic life of floating on a cloud. Life is wonderful. We have no problems. We have a glorious future. We have peace with God. We have no problems, right? That's what we've learned. And then we read verse 3. So enjoy this next week. You know, enjoy floating on the cloud this week. Next week, we'll come back and talk about tribulation. Okay? All right? God bless you.